Qualified host Steve Lucky Luciano. The show where we bring you heat direct from the street. This afternoon on my right, my man Chumahan Bowen, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian. Watch your scalp. <laughs> That's an arrow, bitch. Don't you worry. Yeah. We love knives. And on my left. Sean Lewis, certified audio professional, engineer for the show. The reason why it sounds so good in here. It's a, that's why it sounds so clean. That's right. We got Warren on the uh, videographer. Warren on the videographer today. On the camera. Yep. What's good, guys? Hey, Warren, that's what's right. your last name? Dotson. Dotson? Dotson. Not G. Uh, how often do you nah, get that? It's D. D. Warren, Warren D. D. Oh, look, he said that with a smile. I like that. You know I like what? That. After Way that girl has you. a drink of tequila sunrise, Warren's like, uh, it's Warren D. <laughs> it ain't Warren, Warren G. D. It's S. Warren D. We're just going to call him Tequila Sunrise. That's his new name, dude. Tequila Sunrise. What up, Sunrise? What's up, Tequila Sunrise? <laughs> What's up, Chumahan? Yeah. yeah. To this lovely afternoon in Costa Mesa, California. Right. Brought on. A very special guest. Very special. Very, that came down all the way from Venice, California today. Gentleman has uh, has done a lot in a relatively short amount of time. He's uh, probably single-handedly responsible for bringing uh, Buddhist awareness, Buddhist culture, whatever you want to call it, to Santa Monica, the west to side. West, the west right? side of L.A., yes, right? Part absolutely. of a proud tradition, actually. Absolutely, and uh, is uh, uh, definitely a leader in the community, um, a very vibrant soul in the community. Uh, Published a, two books that I've read. I've actually read. He's got four, but I've read two. two. Yep. He's published four. Accomplished, yeah, accomplished writer, uh, poet, number of things. He's helped me uh, in a lot of different ways. And, like what? Uh, you know, my meditation practice, uh, I've grown and learned uh, through his studios against the stream and just, you know, interacting and watching this guy by example, lead by example. He's impacted my life on a lot of different levels, but spiritually, my gains have gone up in a lot of the teachings and stuff that he's brought. Listen, let me tell you something. Let's just let's just stop bullshitting around. Absolutely. I read his book. I want to I can't remember how long ago. Sean, how long ago was that? Maybe 10 years ago. 10, 15. Dharma I, Punk? Dharma Punks, Punks mm-hmm. with an X. Yes. Because everything cool has an X. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I read his book and I gave it to Sean, right? Yeah. And did you read it? I did, yeah. All right. Yeah. God damn it. Yep. And uh, so, with no further ado, yeah. I'd like to welcome Mr. Noah Levine Noah to the Levine. show. Noah. Noah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Happy, welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for the kind words. Welcome. You drove down on your motorcycle. Yeah, today, finally. Huh? Actually, I've been off for six months. I had a 
accident on the dirt bike and I was on crutches. Lucky knows he actually came and helped me out a bit mm-hmm. and uh, just got back on the bike this week. Finally. Nice. Bad, a bad ass dude's got a bad ass motorcycle. What kind of motorcycle is it? What kind of dirt bike is it? Uh, I have a Husqvarna dirt bike. Husqvarna. Just the name's badass. I rode the, Those uh, are famous. Rode the Harley best. down today. Nice. And I saw him like a couple weeks prior to this accident that he's talking about. Yeah. I see this badass bike on the back of his truck. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go bike. <laughs> and then, and then like what, a week later I see him and he's in like a full on leg cast thing. Like I'm like, what the, how bad was the damage on that oh, knee? Oh man, I destroyed my knee. You know, and the backstory is, you know, I've, I've been riding motorcycles my whole life, but not really dirt bikes, street mostly. Right. Mm-hmm. Mostly Harleys. And, and uh, I was in Thailand last December and I went on this dirt <sighs> adventure like in northern thailand along the borders of uh burma and laos and it was just like it was so dope yeah and we were less like on these like smugglers trails the guide was like oh yeah this is where they bring the heroin in from you know right and i was like this is so crazy and so fun and i don't really know what i'm doing but i'm having such a blast right right so i get home and i'm a junkie right so i'm like that's fun more is better more More is better so i go out and buy a you know, supercharged track bike, you know, like way above my experience <laughs> level. Right. Yeah, in Thailand, yeah. we're riding these little 250s that uh-huh, like, uh-huh. You, know, you can't do really wheelies unless you try. Right. And then I get this bike that's just, you know, over my head. First time, and Steve saw it. First time I rode it, just flipped it, riding <sighs> up three miles up the mountain, flipped it, landed on my knee, destroyed oh. every ligament in my knee the ACL, the MCL, the patellar ligaments, the <sighs> meniscus. The PCL, like everything. And then I'm stuck on the top of a mountain. What do you right. do? Mm-hmm. Call the, heli- roll, call roll the helicopter? Is that, did they call a helicopter or did you just roll down? I was like, I got two good arms and one good leg. <laughs> I think I can get out of here. Right. And we rode down. Damn. I just rolled down. Yeah. But my knee, my leg felt like it was just like hanging by Dangling. a Dangling. Oh, good God. And then we're up in the mountains, so we're like, we got to get back to the west side. I'm not going <laughs> to a fucking hospital out here and being stuck out here. Right. Right. So we drove all the way back. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, With it was one of those things like it was leg dangling so in the wind. Painful, but it was okay as long as you didn't move. So, like, we got the bike in the truck. I got in the truck. Took some Advil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to be all right. Yeah. And, when, and so was it one of those casts where, like, his whole leg had to be straight? Oh, to, yeah. Yeah, I had to have it straight for, like... A month and a half until I got the surgery. Yeah. And then after the surgery, I had to be straight for like another month. God damn. And then I could start bending it. And then I could bend it for like about a month and a half, like trying to physical therapy, like get some movement in it. And then mm-hmm. I had to go back, but no weight on it. I still had to stay on crutches the whole time. Mm-hmm. So then I went in uh, finally for the second surgery. And then yeah. about two weeks after the second surgery, they said you can start walking, which is only a month ago. Right. So I've only been walking for a month. So collectively, how long was it downtime? Five months down. Damn. Five months. That was man. in February. So and this guy's like constructing later. an apartment, a business, moving his house. All this stuff was going on. It's a good wow. thing. It's a good thing I got a lot of good homies. <laughs> you know, Lucky and Moke and a whole bunch of guys yeah. came in and we're like, okay, we'll be your uh, arms and legs and help you out. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> man. Yeah. Yeah. You got to crawl before you can walk. Man, I tell you. Plus, I'm lazy anyways. I would have had them do it anyways. <laughs> exactly. Like, good, now you had an had excuse. Good, good excuse. Listen, so, like, I'd love to I'm help you carry crutches. this. You know? Listen, yeah. let me get the door. No, oh, I'm on crutches. <laughs> I wish I could. Noah, where uh, where are you from originally, Noah? Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Santa Cruz. Oh, uh, Lost Boys. I grew up in Santa Cruz. 
And uh, my father moved to New Mexico to Santa Fe and then Taos when I in the like late seventies. Mm-hmm. So then I went back and forth between New Mexico and Santa Cruz until I, you know, until, until New Mexico's kind of a spiritual place too, right? It is for sure. Taos. It and is all for that? sure. I mean, that's why like my dad and all these hippies moved out there. There was communes, and they were like Taos is like a. Well, you know, spirit. What do they call it? A vortex, like right. a spiritual center. Right. Like right. So they all moved out there in the seventies, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I hated it. You did why? Well, I hated it because what, I was what? a I was a skate surf kid, punk. You know, I was already into punk rock, and then I was the only white kid in these all Mexican Native American schools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was getting bullied. Oh, uh, you mean they didn't just accept oh, you no. with open <laughs> arms? Come not. on. Yeah, exactly. You mean people who were oppressed didn't uh, turn around and understand Ex- your oppression? Exactly. Get out of here. Exactly. <laughs> of course. Which later, like I think, a good formative life experience. But when right. you're a seven-year-old kid. You know, when you're in elementary school and you're having to fight your way through the hallway, not fun, of right. course. Right. Um, but later, I came to appreciate it. Like New Mexico's super dope. Right. And they invented you know, the green chili cheeseburger oh, in Santa the green Fe. Green chili. <laughs> That's what I miss the most. Yeah. The green chili is so good. Yeah. 100%. You know, I think there's also an interesting piece about going back and forth, being a punk rocker. But like the Chicano culture, this is in the 70s, mm. the yeah. low riders, the Chicano culture. I was just like, although I was afraid of them, mm-hmm. they were the most gangster, coolest motherfuckers in town. Right. So later, you know, of course, what do I do? I buy a low rider. You of know? course. <laughs> you know? And of course, there's always been that crossover with the uh, with the punks there has and the cholos and, absolutely you know, especially suicidal bringing that in but steve said steven's brought that because we've talked a little bit about that right we were talking about that i can't remember maybe we we're talking about that with marcel right yeah yeah, marcel, yeah yeah about the intersection like there seems to be an intersection chicano culture punk culture and then steve brought up it's because of the west side you have all those elements living like real close uh, to each other. I think, I, you know what? And it was taking place in different beach towns through California. Uh, you right. know, you got to give credit to everybody. But I think because of stuff like Dogtown, because of suicidal, the focus, and because I'm from there, the focus, I saw a lot of it really big in Santa Monica, Venice. You know, that whole suicidal cap flip, Pendleton button to the top, Vans, and for, Chris, and for like, people who don't know, young people who don't know suicidal tendencies, which is probably not like classic rock by now, but that that's what we're talking about. <laughs> suicidal <laughs> tendency, the band. Yeah, cl- okay. yeah classic. So every time punk. you hear suicidal, we're not talking about someone's borderline. We're talking about a band called suicidal tendencies. Absolutely. And and let's was remember really more like a gang. Yeah, it was right. like a gang. And was a gang like, too. It, it was a gang too. But the, the, the interesting thing about it is that as this is actually being birthed and hatched in the early 80s in in the west side of Los Angeles prior to that the punk scene which which i was seeing and which was coming was was coming was like this english scene that was coming over very white dominated this and that and a white you associated it primarily with white white kids you know right. But as it started coming into our area, you'd go to a punk show, back Black Flag or ST show, and you would see like black dudes and Chicano dudes like in punk rock. And that I remember at the time was like, well, this is different. We have like a rainbow of punk rock and like right. it plays into this area and that plays here. And it was just like this mesh that I still to this day have not seen. I didn't see it happen anywhere else. I, I saw it born out of the West Side. Um, and there was everything that culture brought everything from music to clothing to 
a style or, you know, and it can't really be replicated. I mean, um, I mean, that's against the entire ethos of it is to try to replicate it. Like that's probably the wrong even approach. I mean, I've, I have some sense that like punk rock came out of, dissatisfaction with the mainstream as a counterculture right as like we don't want to be part of white america like, right you know we're trying to set ourselves apart we're, we're intentionally rebelling against this right. society and system right so then you know the, the the to the cholos is like they're also you know counterculture also and then the punk is such like a street scene yeah so like there was i feel like there was so much connection with kind of non-white street culture that the punks were kind of like, yes, we are privileged white kids rebelling against whatever it is, but we're rebelling because we don't want to be part of that system. Right. Mm -hmm. We're more identified with and, like, and, and, what's, what's going on in and, this And world. let's be real. I mean, if we're really going to get serious and like pull back the curtain and stop fucking around, if we're going to be serious, there's a lot of white people that while like I do believe that there's such a thing as white privilege, there's a lot of white people that aren't benefiting from white privilege. There's a lot of poor white people that really aren't part of the the big game or whatever you want to call it. And so they... I think like sometimes punk rock and some movements like that also give a voice to them to be able to say like, hey, I'm not really allowed into the clubs that the so-called like I'm never going to be at the blue blood fucking sandwich dinner with Bush senior. That's never going to that's never been my thing. Right. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, punk rock counterculture attracts all types, right. you know, and everywhere from like the lower class kids that grew up poor and grew up on the street. And, you know, this was like just the, the music of rebellion right. to some of the like rich kids that just saw how empty it was yeah. that their parents fucking always gone money and power was just a dead end. Yeah. And mm -hmm. they were like, mm -hmm. fuck mm -hmm. this capitalist right. lie. Right. right. And, you know, kind of walking away from their money right. and their privilege. And right. Because they could be at those dinners, you know. <laughs> like, right. I got I got a I got a friend in New York City who's a. Uh, 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 a relative, an ancestor of uh, Burr, of uh, like uh, the guy that killed Hamilton. Yeah, Burr. Ra Raymond is it uh, not Raymond William? Burr. William Burr. Nah. Burr? No, you know, so it's like Where's old my phone? school American, uh, you know, you know, blue bloods pedigree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pedigree. But he was, you know, but he was a junkie. He was a punk rocker. He mm -hmm. was just like, I don't want any part of that shit. Actually, funny story. I, I performed that dude's wedding. And he married this woman. Uh, I better not get too much into it. But anyways, it was controversial because, like, she came from, like, these hip Canadian hippies and, you know, <laughs> like, had a lesbian history. <laughs> and then his, like, super conservative, you know, the Burrs. Right. There. Right. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Yeah, it was, like, his great-great-grandson or something like that. So I feel like, you know, the those of us who wake up and say, like, I don't want to be part of this. Right. I, I want to do something to change it. I want to do something to to rebel against it. Come from all kinds of different backgrounds, whether it's from oppression or from privilege. That's true. You don't have to be. So I get what you're saying. You're saying some the privilege isn't everything it's cracked up to be, and sometimes kids can see that. Sometimes, and then th that's the question of like, um, but then how is it used? Is it used to be an ally? Is it used to kind of create some positive change or or not? Well, I mean, dude, we're, I mean, you're 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 putting your finger on. I think what is probably the sh strangely one of the most difficult and challenging obstacles facing us today. Right, we've kicked the can down in this country about as far as you can go with this neo 
ca- liberal capitalism stuff with this kind of middle ground Clinton stuff, which, listen, I used to be a fan of Clinton, okay? So I'm not saying all that. I'm just saying we've kicked it down the road to a point where it's almost like we can't go any much further like this, right? I mean— no, the corporations took over all politics, including liberal democratic right. politics. Right. And there's no there's no longer any such thing. Right. As you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, although they're fighting about, you know, bullshit. Yep. They actually are run by the same fucking corporations that sure. are running everything. Right. And, you know, until we get away from corporate money and fucking unbridled capitalism, their politics aren't gonna fucking change us. Right. And, and I anyway, I'm not that educated on this, but that's what makes sense to me. Well, hold on a second, though. Let's let's like okay. So like now we're in this section. So let's back it up for a second because this is this is all. I've man, when I read your book, look, this is like a in some ways it's like a dream country because I'm like, dude, I read this dude's book. I thought a lot and hard, and I've I've studied a lot of Buddhism, done a lot of meditation. I'm by no means am an expert, but and I've gone to against the stream, and I've 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 listened to you speak. I believe the story that you told it was some years ago was about the. The guy who was talking to the Buddha and that he believed in fire and that fire was, you know, the spiritual end all be all and fire has all this stuff. And the Buddha's reply was like, well, I believe in the cool, the coolness. I'm about, you know, quenching the desire. I'm about cooling all these things off. Okay. I see that. And that, that dude. There you go. Good job. Like, the fire sermon. Yeah. yeah the yeah, fire that's, sermon. That's a big one. Yeah. That was like eight years ago, a one off somewhere. Yeah. And I, I had to fucking basically. My like, man did his homework. Too. I, I had to chase down fools to figure out. It was, it was when it was, I think you might've been, it was on Melrose and I had to chase it down and find a little fucking shop and go inside, turn a corner. And then there was a bunch of people on these. That's fucking, right. I keep all my meditation centers like speakeasy. It's in the alley between That's 10th funny. and 11th, yeah. and then you gotta, you know. There was a guy, yeah, I had to knock on the door, some big guy, one of the Gambinos, like, yeah. opened the thing and was like, hey. So, so, you're, so, so, but like, your dad is Stephen Levine, who's also a well known Buddhist. Uh, he's part of a movement bringing Buddhists to America, Buddhism, For right? Sure. And a, and a poet. Yeah. And yeah. a hippie. Hippie, author you know, did most of his work around death and dying and really, like, bringing Eastern perspectives. You know, his big book was Who Dies? Of this inquiry of, like, okay, the body dies, but is that who you are? That's Mm -hmm. interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. like, is there some Mm -hmm. spiritual process going on here? And so he he dedicated, you know, 30 years, 40 years of his life to helping people die during the AIDS epidemic, you know, Mm. hospice, like— you know, wow. so I grew up, but you know, he was like down with Ram Dass and Jack Cornfields. So I grew up, grew up around all of these like pioneering Western American. For some reason, they're all Jews, right? Right. Like, that's all these like Jews <laughs> that went like Hindu, Buddhist, right? You know? Right. And um, you know, so I grew up in that. But I was like, this is bullshit. Like, how? Why is, was it how bullshit? Is, how is sitting still in meditation mm. helping anybody? Cause, cause, you know, I was like, anarchy, revolution, smash the state, let's burn this motherfucker down. Where did and they're this, like, you know, ohm. <laughs> where did this, but where did the, where, so this is what I really wanted to kind of get down yeah. to a little bit is, what for, when did you first, like, become aware of, like, fuck authority? Well, I mean, it goes back to my dad, you know, it goes back to my family of origin. My parents got divorced when I was two. My mom was an addict. My dad cared more about teaching and helping others than being present for his own family. Got it. So I got the core message early in my family of origin of that, like, you're not that important. And these authority figures aren't that trustworthy. Right. Mm. 
And I started getting high when I was seven years old. I started lighting fires when I was five years Mm -hmm. old. It was that sort of like, you're not going to pay attention? I'll make you motherfuckers pay attention. Check it out. I just got arrested. Check it out. I got a felony. Check it out. I'm locked up. Like, anybody paying attention here? So the great Mm. Buddhist teacher's (laughs) own son is lighting shit on fire and getting in trouble. That's interesting. I mean, like, first time I had the, the authority, I was like five years old, and I was trying to smoke my mom's cigarettes. I and love I smoking the, other people's and, cigarettes. And I lit the field <laughs> on fire. And I did it, that. Like, it charred like an acre or two. We were up that. in the mountains in Santa Cruz. They took me down to the fire department. They were like, okay. you know." And I was like, "You know, men in uniform. Motherfuckers are lecturing me. Okay, they're the enemy. Yeah. And then you know, it just went from there. You know, I was getting hot. By the time I was nine, I was eating mushrooms. I was taking LSD at 10, 11. I got strung the fuck out. And my parents you know, were those hippies that were like, well, if you're going to get high, <laughs> get high with us. Oh, yeah, and I great. was like, I've been stealing your weed for years. Like, mm, cool, now you're mm. going to give me a little bit? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's Damn. interesting. Yeah, so. So, you know, because it, it, the other thing that I think about a lot, too, is that uh, I've noticed in our culture, like, I've really seen that Generation X, you know, people who don't know, it's like late 70s, early 80s, whatever that is, before uh, millennials, they have an anti, there's a strong anti-hippie movement or vibe, and what do you attribute that to? Like, why? I, I know my personal self, like, listen, I grew up on an Indian reservation, right? So I'm, like, right in the heart of what hippies think is fucking great, right? We're going to commune with the earth. Mm. But in real life on the reservation, no one's walking around barefoot. No one's doing all that shit. Like, we're trying to live life. We're doing, we got a lot of normal stuff. We're watching TV. Huge, like, you know, reservation houses with, like, rusted out, like, eight rusted out cars in the front yard, but a a, a fucking television dish Uh that you could contact NASA with. Right, right, Everything's about the TV. Right, right, right. All right. But... So it's all like that. And then this family, dude, this, I'll never forget. I was maybe like six. And they called themselves the Love Family. They were these hippies and they wanted to stay. And they, and they had this powwow. And then this love dude, he looked just like Jesus. And you know what? <laughs> I was a little kid and I instantly hated him. And I didn't like the fact he was wearing bare feet. I didn't like that he was with all of his tents on the reservation. I didn't like that he was like communing. And I know something about that seemed so phony to me. Mm. At the time, I was like, that's not real, man. Mm-hmm. That's I don't know what you're on some trip that mm-hmm. I, I don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So what do you, so for me I always felt like hippies didn't finish the job and that's why I was always pissed. I think that's a big part of it. Didn't finish the job. I think that um, you know, our generation looked at like okay, these guys were talking about revolution, but they were but were they anything more than just a drugged out, you know? self-indulgent self-indulgent and also they all you know majority of them sold out totally you know um yeah how do you go from the hippies to reagan exactly i got you so i so i think some of it is like a cultural generational shift and then a lot of us punks were traumatized by our hippie parents right so it was Mm. personal it wasn't just a political fuck the hippies it was like my parents are hippies and they did not do a good job. Right. And fuck that whole culture. And we're, right. you know, and, and peace and love failed. Right. So we might have to break some shit. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Absolutely. That, well, that is the frame of mind. We yeah. might have to break some shit yeah, now. Yeah, we might have to break some shit. Because and, that other shit ain't working. And right. The, and the music was so, you know, punk rock music so powerful. Like right. when I heard punk rock when I was like 10 years old and I heard the Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones and Black Flag and 10 years old, I'm like, is like, um, 
right. you know? And so it's like, you know, first wave punk rock. And I was just like, this explains how I feel. I feel angry. I feel mm -hmm. afraid. I feel like I want to break something. And this music is like the voice of God. Right. Right. And now there's this whole subculture of people who are, are you know, are, are moving this direction. Yeah. And, and now, you know, and feeling left out and not feeling part of. Of like now I can be part of the the you know the misfits the land of misfit the toys the rejects yeah, and right. those who are saying like fuck the mainstream right and um, you know I feel like Buddhism is like a I mean uh, punk rock and Buddha you know I come to Buddhism later I'm sure right. we get there yeah but like that dissatisfaction of like I, I'm not finding like where's where's the happiness where's right. where's the peace where's the contentment the you promised know, where's, rewards where's equality. Where's justice right. in this fucked up world? Right. And we're going to scream about it. Right. You know, that's interesting because I was reading uh, D.T. Suzuki, and he was talking about his turn to Buddhism, and it was just after World War II. And <clears throat> before World War II, uh, he was, like, really deep into, and the Japanese at the time really believed, like, we, we might win this and we're on the right side, sure right? And we are going all the way, right? And there's nothing better. And then when eventually they had to accept surrender, it was such a mind fuck to people who were just committed. Like Japanese are committed, committed to it. right? Yes, they are committed. Yes. And then now they have to admit surrender. I mean, and you're talking about people who have people on islands. Like it took years that they didn't believe that there was a surrender, right? And he said that everything was lost to him at that point, that he was totally devoid of anything to believe in. And that is when he real he started to, yeah, and then he went to a monastery and they wouldn't even let him in, right? They wouldn't let him in. They had, you had to stay outside the monastery in a, in a, in a position, bow, 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 I don't know how you say it, bowing position or whatever for a long time before they even let you in to see if you're even fucking serious. Make you mm. wait three days, make sure you mean it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a rehab. <laughs> yeah. Come yeah, back tomorrow. Detox, okay. So anyway, but, um, and it was a similar thing. It was like a complete just disillusionment with the ideology at the time that was promising rewards that never came true. Is that how you got to Buddhism then? Yeah, I mean, I got Buddha. I got to. I got to. I got to the place of desperation through addiction. You know, through just like getting strung out and getting locked up, and just you know, hopelessness. And then you know, I had the fortunate situation where my father. You know, I'm locked up, and I. How old are you at this time? Seventeen. Okay, and you're in Santa Cruz, and locked I'm in up. Santa Cruz. I mean, I got started getting sent to AA meetings. When I was like 13, right. I was getting arrested a lot. Okay. Right. And, um, you know, so I knew a little bit about recovery, but I didn't really think it applied to me. But I was a crackhead. I was shooting dope. I was committing felonies. And um, I was locked up and I had a suspended, suspended sentence. And I tried to kill myself like a pseudo suicide attempt in the holding cell. Mm. And I woke up and I woke up in the like uh, observation, like padded room. Mm -hmm. And my dad's in New Mexico. I'm in Santa Cruz. And he, and he gets on the phone. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't come, but he gets on the phone. And I'm like, dude, I need some help. And I'm like thinking about a lawyer. <laughs> and he's right. like, well, right, let me right, teach right. you how to meditate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, that's not really the help I'm looking for. But I'm desperate enough to like, I'll try anything. Mm -hmm. now, I had seen meditation modeled my whole life, but I had never been interested in it. But I was in so much... Um, you know, I think that actually to back up, I feel like there was a shift that happened psychologically, emotionally in me 
before that conversation with my dad. I'd been in that juvenile hall a whole bunch of times. Yeah. And it was always everybody else's fault. Okay. Society, system, police, hippies. Right. Blame. Right. Right. Blame, blame, blame. But that time when I was locked up and I was like, fuck it, I got to kill myself. I'm back in here. I'm going to go to YA for seven years. I'm not, you know. And because I've been suicidal since I was like five. Right. When I was five years old, I was thinking about, I want to get out. What mm-hmm. if, you know, and then I started lighting fires and getting high. I'm like, it made it manageable. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at 17, I was like, I failed. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't exist. And now it was on you. Yeah. I was like, and it's not everybody else's fault. I'm the one doing the crimes, taking mm-hmm. the drugs. How did you come to that? I don't know. It was like that, like, they call it like that moment of clarity. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I think that I had just blamed for so long. That it, like it wasn't holding water anymore. Right. It's interesting because people usually don't get to that point Something until like 40 or 50. Right. Go on. Something so, shifted for me where I was just like, I got myself. I'm the one fucking up. Now, let me ask you a question. So you're in, you're, you're in juvie and like, are you, when you have that thought, are you looking in the mirror? Are you no, just no, staring I, at the wall? No, what the man, fuck? I'm fucking deep. I'm kicking dope and booze in a padded cell. And having like nightmare kind of like oh, shit. dreams and detox. But there was just something was just occurred to me of like, I put myself here. It's not everybody else's fault. Nobody made me do that crime. Nobody made me do that. Like, yes, society is fucked up. The world is full of inequality and oppression and ignorance. That's all true. Right. And I'm making the choices to respond the way ran that out I'm of respond. people to blame. Yeah. It's like that's true, and what's also true is that I'm committing these crimes. Right, you're not exactly doing <laughs> anything. Crack you're not day. exactly alleviating any of exactly. the things that you don't like. No, total nihilistic self-destruction. Let me ask you another question. So, but it was that shift that I think opened the door when Dad said, "Let me teach you meditation," okay. that allowed me to go back to my room and say, "Let me let me give this a shot." Now, let me ask you a question. Because, like, as we're sitting here talking, and I'm thinking about sons and fathers. How much did you have to surrender in order to go back to your father's regime and accept that help? You know, it's interesting. It's a great question, and it's interesting. Because I did love my father and did look up to him. Sure. I had a lot of critiques of him, Mm -hmm. you know, as a hippie. Right. But, you know, when I later, I don't know if this will help, but later I said to him, because I, I left home when I was 15. I got emancipated. I was like, fuck this. I'm dropping out of school. I'm out. And my dad signed the papers and was like, okay, you're, you want to be a man? You're an adult. Go. Wow. And I went and smoked crack and committed felonies. <laughs> and got locked up. Who went and been so a man? <laughs> later when I got clean, I said, dad, what the fuck were you thinking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Letting me just run right. wild at, right. you know, as a teenager. He said, well, I was pretty sure you were going anyway. Right. And I made a choice to let you leave with love or to let you leave with, like, you know, hatred. Right. So he said, I thought that if I let you leave with, like, my blessing, that, you know, if and when you were ready for help, we would still have a loving connection. And he was right. You know, because there was a, you know, I did, my my father was a, a kind person. Right. Um. So that, you know, there, there was, and I, I said, like, what a gamble. I was like, because all my homies, you know, got locked up and dead. 
and you know, and that could have happened. And that you know, I was that's where I was headed. You tried to commit suicide sure. in the juvie for sure, like right. you know, and and weapons and violence and gangs Dude, and all of that shit that was happening as a crackhead on the streets, right? You know, like um, the serious risk that he took, but. I think it was also part of that hippie, like, well, if it's your karma. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's You're amazing. already going. Yeah, but you can see, like, even as you say this right now, and it's true, you can see how that thought or that that message can seem almost like a veiled lack of responsibility. Like, you're yeah, giving up yeah, responsibility, yeah, 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 but yeah, I'm going to... Yeah. So this is... and I, I mean, I hope every person... You know, everybody has parents, I guess, so every person listening to this, because... A, a lot of people want to have that magic conversation finally with their parent, right? Where it's like, what what happened or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Did, now, let me ask you this. In all honesty, yeah. have you had the magic? Do you feel like, okay, I've had the magic conversation and, it, it, and it's satisfied? Or do you still have a little bit of lingering? Um, lingering, but let me tell you how it kind of came to lingering, which was... Uh, we had those conversations. I made amends. I asked for forgiveness. My father became my teacher, my spiritual teacher, right? Like he taught me meditation. And when I was like getting clean and meditating and going to his workshops and going to the retreats that he told me to go to and, and, and reading the books and, you know, thinking about the gurus that he was talking about. And I was like this starry eyed kind of open, became open minded, you know, mm -hmm. I had a big shift and I was like, all right, I want to get enlightened. Right. I went from like, fuck religion, fuck spirituality, fuck the hippies to like, I'm going to become a Buddha. Right. That's the most punk rock thing I could do. Right. Real rebellion, spiritual real. rebellion. For real. And in the beginning, like I had a huge healing with my father because I had him on a pedestal. Yeah. But what happened later was I started to develop some of my own views that didn't fit with his. Interesting. Mm. I became more non-theistic, more Buddhist, more psychological. Right. And he was like a shaman, like a mystic, like wanted to attribute a lot of stuff to mysticism and to right. his guru that he right. never met. Right. And I was like, that kind of sounds like bullshit, dad. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? Did you ever, did you ever tell him? Oh, I did. He and what got, did he say to he that? He got mad. Did he? Oh, yeah. He could not. He was attached. He was so attached. Wow. You know, he could not... Uh, tolerate actually that i had a different view and i'm sure i was an asshole about it i'm sure mm -hmm. i wasn't like you know skillfully I'm, i was <laughs> you know i was individuating later where i was like look i love you i think you've helped so many people and i think that some of your spiritual views are delusional right uh -huh. you know you're assigning a lot of meaning mm -hmm. to who got you that parking place huh? <laughs> you know? it's a little it's bit all, of superstition uh, yeah and, and i don't know i could be wrong no but that was my, i don't i say <laughs> no i don't know no. i don't know but no because i have a different view i've read a lot of i've read a lot of so like there's all so i don't know how much americans know about what different kinds of buddhism there are right you've got everyone that to the zen which are like super practical the kind of people that say if you see the buddha kill the buddha because they don't want to get tied too much to any hierarchy or any doctrine, right? Which maybe that's the most punk rock thing well, you can Well, it became get. its own doctrine, though. Exactly. It started as that. But and then it became its own doctrine. Exactly. So the issue is, 
at some level, any institution or any doctrine, you're going to always be stuck with that maybe near evil if you believe it too much and teach it. All right. Then you got like these pure lamb Buddha people, right? Which it's more like a religion, right? Like Buddha's a god it's and there's this. theistic. Yeah. yeah. And you're going to go to a kind of a heaven sometime or whatever. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So that's interesting because I fall in line much, much closer to the, the more practical Zen approach. Well, Zen, but then there's like my school, which is the Theravadan school, which is right. the Thai, Burmese, Sri Lankan. It's the, it's the early, we, yeah, we call it early Buddhism. The elder, the elder school, Where right? the Buddha was like, you know, critiquing the caste system right. of the, of the, you know, Brahmins and the right. Hindus. And, and and he was rebelling against their externalizing the gods, right? So let's and let's making it outside of yourself. And he, you know, Buddha, Buddhism, early Buddhism is humanist psychology, right? He's saying actually human beings have all of the causes of suffering right inside them, yeah, and the ability to heal all of the causes of suffering right inside our own mind, right? If we train our mind, right? If we develop compassion, if we develop forgiveness, if and we focus. do the meditative mind training heart opening right it's all here it's not external it's right. not shiva's gonna do it or brahma's gonna do it or well, jesus okay. is gonna take away all of your sins and suffering he's like nope you got to do that shit yourself so so i don't think people understand that like i don't I especially new age californian people don't fucking understand that which is that at the time that the buddha is starting to do this critique that he was a yogi originally right he's in india and then he's studying with, they always call him the ascetics, but basically like yogis, and he's doing all the meditation. And he's not throwing any of that training away, essentially. He's not necessarily saying you, you do have to be able to be focused, but he was like the star pupil. And then he gets to the end, and he sees no God, right? Well, he sees, I mean, I feel like his mission was, how do I come to peace? How do I come to ease? How do, how do I, how do we as human beings live in this human body, with this human mind, with our nervous system, with emotions, with the world of oppression and ignorance. Right. And how do we end suffering? Right. So you're right. He studied with all of these other people that said, this is how you do it. Right. And he was like, that shit didn't work. Mm -hmm. I did and, it and exactly they, you know, all the way. His, his gurus were like, oh, yeah, you got it. That's the highest level of teaching. Mm -hmm. And what happened was they were teaching him concentration meditation. Right. Here's how you can get so focused that you enter a bliss realm. Right. He's like, cool, I can enter a bliss realm. And then that shit wears off when I'm walking down the street. Right. I can't live this. I want something that I can live, something that I can embody all of the time. Right. And that's where he, can, he discovered, he created mindfulness. Right. He's like, concentration is a good skill. It's a yogic skill. Right. It'll help you ignore everything that's causing you suffering. But it's not going to end the roots of suffering, which are craving, aversion, self-centeredness. Right. Only mindfulness is going to do that. So he discovered that. And then he taught this. You know, the Buddha rebelled against Hinduism. Yes. Just like Jesus rebelled against Judaism. Correct. Right? Like, yeah. You know, these, are, these are revolutionary guys that are critiquing the religious views of their time. Right. Now, of course, then people turn them into saints and turn them into a religion. As a way to avoid actually and doing it. as soon <laughs> as they're not around, they start corrupting the teachings. Right. And they start corrupting, the, turn it into a power dynamic and turn it into a fucking, you know, patriarchal hierarchy of who has the power and who gets the money and, you know, and who who's controls in control. People. Yeah. 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 So, you know, what we, what we see as Buddhism today 
in every tradition, including the Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, is a far departure from the Buddha's early teachings. Right. Religion has corrupted the teachings of the Buddha, just like Christianity, Catholicism has corrupted the teachings of Christ. Maybe we could say the same thing about Islam. I'm not as educated on right. what Muhammad actually did and said and how the religion unfolded. I don't know. I think so. But I, I mean, just I, feel I, like I, people fuck everything up. Well, look it. I bet you, you know, on day one in San Bernardino, the McDonald's hamburger was fucking good. <laughs> right? And right, it's become right. a religion yeah, almost yeah, now. And yeah. look what happened to that hamburger. Busted football. Exactly. So, okay, cool. So, and I don't think people understand that. And you use the term Brahmin. Those were the high priests in the Hindu religion at the time. Yeah, we can call it Hinduism. But then the scholars are like, well, Hinduism is like a colonial term for sure. the Brahmanic okay. power structure of ancient India. And there was a caste system. A caste system. And there was Race, people. Racism. Right. The, the lower, the light skin, highest caste. The darkest skin, lowest caste. Right. Straight up racism. Um, and then justified by like, it's your karma. Right. That you did something yeah. in some stay, prior you life. You gotta stay in your place. <laughs> it's your karma. And this is where the Buddha was fucking radical and why the Brahmins and the Hindus fucking hated him. Right. Because he said, everybody's welcome in this community and let women in in a way that women had never been empowered in right. that culture. And the, what, the untouchables, which are basically the black people, you know, like right. everybody in and said, you know what? Your equal your merit is based on what you do, not what you look like. Right. It's based on how you show up, what kind of integrity you have. Nothing to do with your caste. Nothing to do with your race or your gender or anything. So he created a meritocracy. Right. Which was so radical because he was having the Brahmins who were like, you know, down with them, some of them, yep. bow to the untouchables, you know, if they if the untouchables were in first. And it just, cre you know, just like shook up society. Right. And, and, you know, and the Buddha was, you know, there was assassination attempts. Like, he was not a beloved character. He right. was a hated shit atheist fucking shit starter that was saying everyone's equal. Unity is what's what we need here. Right. You know, we need to dismantle the religious power structures and we need to empower every human being to develop compassion in their own heart. Can I ask you a question? Have you have you read the Stephen Batchelor? Yeah. The Buddhism. How? What's your stance on which his one? Take? Buddhism without beliefs. Yeah, or? yeah. I like Batchelor a lot. Stephen Batchelor is one of my teachers. Known him for over twenty years. Um, I don't agree with everything Batchelor says, but it's very interesting. Become like if you get real interested in Buddhism, he's a good guy to read because he critiques Buddhism in a way that not very many people do. Most. Buddhists are like, here's the party line. Here's the Zen party, li right. party line. Here's the Tibetan Buddhist party line. Um, and he kind of goes in, who's somebody who practiced Zen for 10 years and practiced Tibetan Buddhism for 10 years and learned all of the early suttas. And he goes in and he unpacks it and says, like, I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't. You know, like, and so that's, that's just where he lands. Like, I, I say a little bit more. His first book was, um, he talked about Buddhist agnosticism. Like, maybe. Right. Rather than I know for sure there's no reincarnation. Mm. Later he came around, he did a book called Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, yeah. where he says, I'm not even agnostic anymore. I just don't believe that shit. Right. And I don't mm. even believe the Buddha taught that shit. I think this is all additions. <laughs> you know, like, so he takes some radical stances. I don't agree with everything he says, but I like questioning. Sure. I like questioning everything. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's why one of the, and another interesting... 
um, uh, like it's <clears throat> not Buddhist, but it's um, Eastern and it's a philosophy is Taoism. I really love that because I can't never pronounce the guy. I'm not talking about Lao Tzu that everybody knows, but I'm talking about this other guy. His name was like Zhang Ji or something like that. But this guy was a radical motherfucker in what he wrote. He has these great texts and they challenge like every core assumption, every core belief that you think is good. And he has this poem where he's talking about a guy's walking down the road and he sees like a, a skeleton on the side of the road and, and the guy goes, oh, that poor man died, that poor skeleton. And then the <laughs> skeleton jumps up and says, how do you know it's not better being dead? <laughs> I love that. I love challenging beliefs. I love challenging assumptions. I love being able to freely discuss all those things. Yeah, there was something wild that happened 2,500 years ago, you know, 500 years before Christ. Um, where, because Dao, you know, Taoism and Buddhism are basically contemporary. I mean, you know, right. there's these folks in China and these folks in India right. that were really starting to question and rebel against some of the, you know, structures that had been put in place for them. Right. Kind of like, does this all make sense? Right. Mm. Yeah, the axial age or yeah. something. Like that. Some yeah. lady, I can't remember her name, she wrote about it, but she was drawn together like, hey, there's Taoism, there's Buddhism, there's all these major humanistic questioning of these larger, like, I feel, uh, civilizations. Like, I feel like it's also like when Plato uh, comes, you know. In, yeah, in it Greece, is. Yeah, she Greece, includes yeah. him. Yeah, too. Yeah. It, it, right. Plato, uh, who, by the way, was put to death for corrupting the youth, for asking them to think about the assumptions they're 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 being taken for going to war. And the leader said, you know what, you're going to you can either recant corrupting the youth by getting them to question things or you, you, you're going to drink hemlock poison and die. And, and and he's the philosopher's hero because Plato was like, that's cool, I'll die. I'm not tripping. And on his way to death, he said, on his deathbed after he drank the hemlock, poison, he turned to his buddy and said, oh, by the way, I owe so-and-so some money because I, I had a sheep. Make sure I, you pay that back. And then he like, <laughs> 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 it was stone-cold motherfucker. Taking care of debts on the way out. Yeah. On the way yeah. out. So you, you have this, so your father invites you to, to meditate. And this is the beginning of a road that takes you. Yeah, man. Like, um, you know, the first couple of years I was I was um, I thought I was going to do some time and I got lucky and I got um, just group home time. Mm -hmm. And um, they said, basically, we're going to keep you off the streets till you turn 18. I was 17 at the time. So I was just like ward of the court, juvie, you know, went from juvie three months in juvie and then went to a group home for like six months, seven months. And I started meditating, and I, but the first couple of years of my meditation practice were like, I was embarrassed about it. It wasn't cool. Right. I was doing it because I was hopeless, and, and you know, like it gave me a little bit of hope. When I started meditating in juvie that first time, I had some level of the realization that, my, that I didn't have to obey my mind. Because my mind kept telling me to commit crimes and smoke crack and fight. <laughs> and right. It's not like all of a sudden my mind didn't do that. Right. Uh -huh. It kept doing that. But now I had this tool of like, oh, I can disengage from my mind and come back into my breath and my right. body. Interesting. Right. And so that was a powerful <laughs> tool. So I used it like in AA, they say there's the um, foxhole prayer. You know, like when you're about to get your ass shit off, you start, you get real spiritual. This happens when people get locked up, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, <laughs> when, when, when the cop sights are behind you. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, either when you're, you're, when you're in <laughs> trouble or like sometimes, you know, there's a lot or of... Or you can't find your keys. <laughs> yeah, no. God, please. Please. And I was using meditation a bit, little bit like that. Right. Like, you know, when I was stressed out. Right. When I was afraid. Um, 
but then I started taking it pretty serious by the time I was 19. I mean, the, part of the shift for me was I still thought, like, I'm just a kid, you know. I should be having not, I didn't fun. think I was a kid, but I was just like, you know, I'm too young to be sober oh, forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to get out of lockup. I got to get my shit together and then later i'll be able to smoke some weed i you know i gotta <laughs> i gotta lay off i gotta yeah. i gotta lay off the you know shooting dope and smoking crack but you know I can, hopefully i'll be able to drink wine like a gentleman <laughs> like i never fucking drank wine you know except for out of a box or a right song, exactly you know? but you know the, the mind is just like i'm gonna drink a fine wine and roll a split <laughs> a connoisseur <laughs> you know uh so i had that reservation but so i meditated a little bit and like literally sometimes I would meditate in my closet like I was in the closet just in case anybody came into my room like with roommates or whatever I didn't want anybody to see me right meditating but then at 19 I got busted for graffiti I was doing a lot of tagging um I was hanging I was stealing shit like I got clean but I didn't get well right <laughs> right I didn't get good I was, I mean, I was going on credit card, you know, uh, runs, stealing <laughs> shopping sprees. I had a, you know, I was running with some motorcycle guys. My garage was full of like stolen shit, motorcycle stuff. And meditating. And I was meditating when I got stressed <laughs> out. And then the cops were after me and at the pool hall and, you know, like everywhere I went. Because also like I'm an egomaniac and an idiot. That's so a good I combo. I spray painted my own, my tag was Noah Core. There you go. Mm, wow. In Santa Cruz. There's right. three Noahs in Santa Cruz. <laughs> right, right, right. So they knew where to find you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm so hardcore. Right. So I'm giving Noah, up, this giving is up all core. my answers. Right. But also this was like, I think it also helped me stay clean because the ego trip of I'm drug free now. Right. I used to be a junkie. Now I'm straight edge. Now I'm I'm better than the junkies. I've you had know? that. I've had yeah. that where you're like, you know what? I'm doing a major dis. You think that's when you start thinking thoughts like, who in America is not fucking drinking? Like mm. I'm not drinking. Like that's mm. that's hey, listen. There's no that's radical, man. Yeah, and then yeah. you start thinking like, because I don't do that, I could probably do some other shit. No. Right? right. Well, and also just like yeah, yes, totally. And the, for me, it was just this ego trip of like. Better than yeah. yeah, better than yeah. I don't touch that shit, man. And you know, I think I've always had a bit of a like a um, just a gang mentality of like the underdog and the like. I want to be part of a clique, and there was no straight edge clique, right? So like, I created it. It was like me and you know a couple other friends, right? And then it was like you know fighting with the punks and the skinheads <laughs> that were still drinking that were my old drinking buddies, right? You know? <laughs> but now I'm straight edge, so fuck mm. you guys. Yeah. <laughs> like my best friend, Joe Clements, who uh, we did this band, The Deathless, which actually you guys should maybe put on the show. There's like this killer Buddhist hardcore band that we created, The Deathless. The Deathless. I love that. You know he he loves to tell this story about like we were friends since we were kids. Used to get loaded together, go to punk rock shows, and I saw him one time and he was drinking. And he wrote drunk edge on his hat oh fuck and that and I came up to him and I knocked his hat off <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna fuck you up man because I was sober and he wasn't and he was making fun of me right you know mm-hmm. right you gotta respect the edge and then later he got sober right of know? course but he loves that story he loves that story that's a good story so Buddhism you know like I, I started going to retreats when I was 19 I hit so I almost got busted the cops I did get busted for graffiti I didn't get busted for the other stuff um, and at that point, I just, that, you know, I had that change at 17 in the hall where I was like, it's me. Right. And then at 19, I was like, nothing works. 
except for meditation. Right. I haven't really done the 12 steps. I had I've been going to meetings. I didn't really believe in God, you know, like I I knew I was powerless, but you know, the steps didn't really resonate with me. Um, but meditation did, you know, like gave me a direct experience of like this works. So at 19, you know, I got busted for graffiti and, you know, 500 hours, $10,000 restitution like, you know, Front page of the paper, like notorious vandal, apprehended. <laughs> Santa Cruz menace. Yeah. <laughs> and um, my dad was like, well, go to a retreat. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Which I'm, I'm ready to take meditation more seriously. So I went to a Jack Cornfield silent meditation retreat. For how long was that? It was that? only three days. The first one was three days. But you could, when did the silence start? Right, like uh, after dinner when you get there the first day. How hard is it to... It's hard. It was hard at the time, and I remember like... Just looking for all the differences, like all oh, those kids, a bunch of hippies. <laughs> uh, my dad, you know, and I knew, I didn't, you know, I knew him. Like uh, my dad's friend Jack. <laughs> but I get a little bit of relief when I close my eyes and I pay attention to my breath. Yeah. And then my mind goes crazy, and then I come back. And I wanted to leave. I even went and talked to the uh, uh, other teacher. I said, you know, I'm, I'm unbounced. Like this is bullshit. Yeah. She's like, just stay for the talk, you know. And then Jack gives this amazing lecture that inspires you and makes it sound fun and easy. Right. You're like, yeah, man, I can do that. I'm staying. Mm. Yeah. And then the next day, you're like, you know what? This is bullshit. <laughs> I want to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. sounds like every day of every everyone's day of life. Every yeah. Life. Yeah. But I made it through, and then felt like, okay, I, I could do this. And then I went to another retreat, and then I met this Buddhist monk, Ajahn Amaro who was like a art school punk rocker in England in the 70s and then like wandered into Thailand and became a Buddhist monk. Okay. And then this is in the 90s, right? And so he's in America now and he's this like English white, you know, yeah. guy that's been in Thailand for the, you know, and and England for the in robes for 20 years or whatever. The golden robes. Yeah, and and I'm this like young punk rocker and somebody they take me to this retreat and and that retreat was a trip. Second retreat, 5 days. Right. In it's called Ten Thousand Buddhas in Ukiah up, up north, and they took one of the old California State Mental Institutes. Okay, and Hotel turned California in, turned it into a Buddhist wonderful uh, monastery. Wonderful. But I'm like you know year and a half out of juvie, <laughs> and the rooms for this retreat are cells. Yeah. And they're still like bathtubs with like fucking shockers and right. shit like that <laughs> in this room. Right. You know, like torture one, chamber shit. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. And we're on a Buddhist meditation retreat. Yeah. And I was tripping because yeah. I was like, I'm locked up again. Yeah. I'm in a fucking cement room and I'm in a cell. <laughs> I got out of the padded cell for yeah. this? <laughs> for this shit. Right. But he just inspired me, you know, and then. You What's know, his name? Ajahn Amaro. Ajahn Amaro. Yeah. A-J-A-H-N. And A-M-A-R-O. So he's been my teacher for the last 28 years, you know, since then. Uh, him and Jack Cornfield were both my teachers. Ah, John. Sounds like one of the guys that rolled with the, with the, well, what's that guy in England with the arrows? Little John, Odd John, oh, Friar Tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the guy that... Robin Hood? Robin yeah, it sounds like one of Robin Hood's <laughs> dudes. Odd <laughs> uh, John. Odd John is um, a Thai honorific it's like it means venerable teacher oh so anybody wow. any monk that has been a monk for 10 years gets that ah john i think it's 10 years then yeah. then you're like the venerable and then if you get like 30 years in then they're lung poor which so now he's actually lung poor 
because no. uh, he's got like 40-something years in robes. You know? Right. So he's, he's old school. Lumpur means grandfather. <laughs> I love that. You know, I went to Bhutan. I yeah. traveled to Bhutan. And uh, we went to uh, a monastery there. And the Dalai Lama of Bhutan, uh, they have like a Dalai Lama of Bhutan. And he, he came and visited at the monastery. And we hung out uh, with them. And, um, and I was just kind of struck by, by what you're saying uh, to a certain extent, that there is this hierarchy. And I really wondered about some of these guys that had been away in a monastery for 40 years and I would think like on some on the one hand they would have some very interesting insights and then on the other hand I wonder what that does to a person you know I I've had a personal um you know very interesting relationship with the monasticism you know the, the guys that are such renunciates there no sex no money right living in the monastery right and the householder teachers you know so i've had these two main teachers for right. the last 30 years one who's a monk one who's a householder i i liked the monk better i felt like he had so much more integrity and was like a real buddhist right <laughs> you know? right but at some point i was like you know i want to learn about fucking and fighting and raising children right. and making money and all of it being part of my spiritual life. Right. And how am I going to learn that from a monk who's sworn all that shit off? Right. How, what's the pra you know, like how much advice can he give me about relationships? Because right. they think sex is suffering. That's why they don't have sex. Right. But like, I want to have sex and not suffer so much about it. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I want to be engaged. I want to be in it with non-attached wisdom. Right. You know? So, you know, kind of landed a little bit more with Cornfield. And then, you know, landed there and, and he trained me as a teacher and all this stuff but then later like I, there was some conflict and then cornfield was like oh no man you're bad for business you know you're getting a bad rep you're bad for business and amro was like this isn't about business and money this is about wisdom and integrity and i got mm. you i got your back so like you know 30 years later Amaro's still my man and cornfield has totally abandoned our relationship that's fascinating. You know, for like corporate bullshit politics. That's interesting because I can see what you're saying. Like on the one hand, in the you would think like, okay, so the household dude, the dude who's part of this world is trying to walk this path in the world. Yeah. But don't, but fu then, don't fuck with his green. Well, so the thing is, <laughs> but what that means is, is that he's not really detached. And the guy in the monastery really doesn't give a fuck. Nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. That's interesting. I love that. So, okay, so you went to the second retreat. Second retreat solidified it a bit more. Right. Do you and have I any experiences? Do you have any, like, like, in your body or in your mind, any, any like, breakthroughs as you do these? Gra you do more, these? more gradual than big ones. I did. Right. I've had, had some, some big meditative experiences and, and breakthroughs, but I feel like it was much more of a gradual path. I started doing... The forgiveness meditation, pretty, I like mindfulness was a relief. Ignore your mind, pay attention to your body. My mind's trying to kill me. Good, I need to ignore that. Come back to the present. Come back to the present. Then they said, okay, now develop loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And I was like, oh, f you know, like this sounds like some hippie shit. Right. I'm not down with this. Like <laughs> this feels unsafe. Right. Like I'm a tough guy. <laughs> I need to stay angry right. and you know, like. Right. <laughs> You want me to be compassionate and forgiving? I'm not going to be a that, doormat. You want me to be vulnerable? <laughs> you want me to experience intimacy? Like, fuck that. Like, that, right. that sounds scary. 
but with enough faith, they're like, oh, let me try it. Let me try the forgiveness because I hate myself and I hate almost everybody else. Right. All these resentments and all of this shame about all the people I hurt, guilt, you know, regret, regret, remorse. So I started doing the forgiveness practice and the loving kindness, the compassion practice, and it didn't work well. It felt like it made everything worse. Right. I was more judgmental, more critical, mm. more. But slowly it took the edge off. Huh. And then I started to feel it and mean it over the period of like five years, 10 years in doing retreats, doing daily meditation practice, very gradual. It wasn't like all of a sudden I've forgiven everybody. I was like, you know, we actually can't. We're, you know, I think that neuroscience has now shown us a lot about how meditation works. We're creating new neural pathways of mindfulness, of compassion, of forgiveness. And you have to repeat that shit over and over and over for decades before your mind starts firing compassionately and for you know and forgiveness becomes a well-worn track in your heart and your mind. Because the mind all by itself is like, no, fuck everybody that makes me uncomfortable. That's just survival instinct, fight or flight. Right. Forgiveness isn't like natural, isn't normal. It's a com completely radical thing that's saying, like, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to have empathy for your pain, why you hurt me, to forgive myself, why I've hurt myself. It's, you know, very slow. Patience. But, but you know, you were talking about reps earlier yeah. Yeah. in your last show. Repetition. Yeah. Over and over and over, even if you don't mean it. Yep. And then you start to mean It's like working out. Yep. You don't see any gains. You don't see any gains. You don't see any gains. That's, you don't see that's, any gains. That's why sometimes when I see some gains, when I when I'm like um, when I see these challenges, you know, like we were like 30 day challenge. We would meditate for 30 days or, you know, 30 day challenge. I'm going to not eat anything gluten related for 30 days. And I'm like, that's got to be maybe the, the, the worst way to start anything, because like you said, you're talking years. That's a long haul. And Dude, I feel time. like in in. in I feel like today most people are so avoidant to maybe making the wrong commitment and then getting stuck somehow that they avoid just saying like, no, I got, I'm going to do this for the next 10 years. I think that one of the reasons why those 30-day challenge, there was a book a few years ago that said um, if you do something every day for 30 days, it'll become a habit. Right. That you have to have that <laughs> repetition to become a habit. So now it just becomes a marketing scheme for right. everybody mm. to be like, we'll help mm. you create this healthy habit for 1999. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, there is something true about like when you do it and you keep doing it, then becomes a habit. Right. A healthy habit. And then I sometimes like when I work out with some people, like they're like, let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten this in, in, so your expertise is Buddhism, you're a teacher, you're whatever, right? So have you ever gotten this analog in your, in your, in your practices or whatever? So sometimes people want to train with me, right? And the first thing they say to me is like, listen, I don't want to get too big, right? And I'm like, don't fucking worry about it, dude. It ain't going to happen. Like, you know how long it takes to get big? So do you have, is there a, a corollary? Like, is there people that are like, look, I just want to get a little spiritual. Look, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to give away floating, my house. I don't want to start floating over things. I don't want to give, I want to be spiritual, but I don't want to lose my edge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't and, uh, definitely there's different people. And I ask people that come to class, like, what's your motivation? Yeah. Some people just want to, you know, like, Mindfulness has been secularized. Totally. And there's all these cool apps. And there's millions of people meditating. And most of those people just want to be a little bit less stressed out. Right. And that's cool. That's right. what they want, right? They don't want to, right? I don't want to get big is enlightenment, right? Like Buddhism is about 
liberation, freedom from suffering, right. living with wisdom and compassion, nirvana. A lot of people are like, I'm not, I don't even have any hope for that or any intention <laughs> for that. Right. I just want to like be a little bit less stressed out. Like there's that guy, Dan Harris wrote that book, 10% Happier. Yep. And I think a lot of people are like, shit, if I could be 10% happier, that sounds pretty good. I, I respect Best seller, that. right? Listen, bestseller, you yeah. know what? You know how many books are bestsellers? <laughs> That's true. Now listen. That's true. Let me tell you something. I, uh, I agree with that to the, the sentiment. Like, I don't disagree with that, and I respect that up to a point. But I'm at a place in my life, and maybe it's just me personally, where I'm now done with that. Where I'm like, you know what? You want 10% happiness. That basically means you don't really want to achieve what you really want. You're, you're, you're playing a compromise game formation. And you're, maybe that's your process. But I don't need to respect it anymore in the sense of, I'm going to tell you the truth. That ain't going to cut it. Well, and I also feel like it depends on how unhappy you are. Right. Okay. You know, if you're like a, you know, like this dude's like rich and famous and, you know, like. Maybe he was pretty satisfied already. I don't know. And he was like, look, I'm already like happy 70% of the time. And if I could be happy 10% more of the time, that would be cool. Yeah. So what's your baseline? Right. right. I feel like I'll make the claim I'm 90% happier than I was when I started. Right. But I was fucking miserable, junkie, locked up. You know, I was unhappy all of the time, chasing the fucking drugs all of the time. It's like when you're 300 so, pounds and you can lose 200 pounds pretty quickly. Yeah. Like there's a big steep yeah. whatever, yeah. and then this last 10 pounds. That last 10%. Right. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm less uh, certain about enlightenment than I used to be. What in does my, that mean? What does that mean? In my 20s, I was like, this shit's all true because I had made so much progress. Right. And, I, you know, I'd had experienced so much freedom. I was like, this shit is true and we can get enlightened in this lifetime. Right. Now, here I am 30 years in and going like, I'm not enlightened yet. Yeah. And none of my teachers are enlightened and they've been doing it for 50, 60 years. Right. They're all, you know, they all have some faults still. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, They're not perfect. So I have less confidence in perfectly enlightened that's fascinating to me because uh so part of my brain goes like yeah but there's a 99 year old buddhist monk with one tooth that's like yeah you guys are just kids wait it's it's, it's coming <laughs> but then also there's a part of me that agrees with that that like maybe the process itself is about as good as you're gonna get and that's actually pretty good but i i dude i used to really i don't know if i believe it or not anymore i'm definitely not on the path to hit it because it from what I've gathered, it takes a lot of work and a lot of concentration to be in line. But I definitely have had the 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 place of like, uh, man, the, the people who I think are leaders are. It sounds conceited, but I'm like maybe individually in a skill, I have something to learn from them. But other than that, they've got no answers for me. There's no answers. There's not gonna be. I'm not gonna open. But then, what do you what do you make? Because you study, what do you make? Of these stories, okay, these these Buddhist stories, where like uh, you know the the monk and the and the oh this was one of my favorites by the way, the monk he's got this he's got this uh, student and they're and they're and they're training they're meditating together the whole time right, and so the uh, the student's falling around falling around for years. Finally, the master's had enough. He's taught him everything he knows. It's up to the guy now to do enlightenment, right? So he tells the guy he says, he goes. He goes, listen, stop following me around. I've taught you everything, motherfucker. 
like it's now you fly or die i can't help you and the guy was like how could you say that to me best with compassion and and the guy and the master takes a stick and hits him in the face and he goes and he goes away years go by and they meet up again and uh the student uh has now become enlightened and the master can tell and the master raises the stick to hit him and the student grabs the stick and says how dare you and the master's like, you have learned. <laughs> <laughs> like those stories, like what do you make of that? Uh, you know, they're archetypal teaching stories about individuation and like becoming your own person. And, you know, at some point you do need to walk away from your teacher. Yeah. And then hopefully you can, you know, return and, and reconnect or, or whatever. But, um, you know, religion, poetry, we love to create perfection things and it's easy to write a beautiful story about yeah. the, you know, it's, it's another thing to really fully embody it. Now, I don't care if like perfect enlightenment is possible. I mean, even the Dalai Lama says, I'm not a fully enlightened being, right. you know, who's been added his whole life and is supposedly the 14th incarnation of Had an incredible training, right? Yeah, like yeah. regimen. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't actually care if perfect enlightenment is possible or not but but what i know and what i do care about is living it as best we can and and there's a choice like i feel like uh, i could have become a monk and i you know we thought about it and i spent a couple years celibate and like i thought about that uh monastic path yeah and i decided you know what i want to be i think there's some healing for me in being a father i want right. to be a parent i want to be a partner I want to be a father. I want to be in. I want to be of service. I want to help the punk rockers of my generation. I want to help the addicts. I want to, you know, I want to be of service in the world uh, as an engaged householder. Right. You know, and and I want to fuck and I want to fight and I want to, right. You know, eat eat delicious food and I want to ride my motorcycle and play right. some poker and maybe enjoy a Cuban cigar later. Like you know, I want to indulge. Right. With wisdom, with compassion. But still some attachment. Yeah, for sure some attachment. Interesting. I mean, I feel like I want to be as free from suffering as possible while indulging in the material <laughs> yeah. world, right? With like a hedonistic um, uh, indulgence, but with a Buddhist non-attached understanding of indulging, right? And the difference is, do we think this is going to make me happy? Like when we know, like, so my, um, my teacher's teacher had a story about uh, a glass that he had some, some, you know, some uppity American psychologist goes and visits them at the monastery and says, okay, master, you're teaching us non, non-attachment. But I see, and because they have nothing, they have robes and a bowl. Right. He says, but I see you have, you're the abbot, you're the master, you have this special cup. Right. And it looks like you're attached to that glass. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine the fucking balls to like try to attack the master about his attachment to his glass? So, anyways, the, the, but the but master, the flip side sure, is, it's like, but, but but who else is gonna say it? Sure. Fuck it, of course, right? I mean, if the guy's got, if, if the master's a master, yeah. he should be able to hear it. But he's got the best answer. What he's, is it? He says, he says, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> he says, this is my favorite glass. <laughs> I like the way it holds my water so admirably. Yeah. Is that when the sun, sometimes when the sun hits it just right, it throws off a little rainbow. Right. You know, he's like, he's got this intimate relationship with this glass. He said, but to me, this glass is already broken. He said, because I understand impermanence. 
I know nothing lasts. I am not attached to this glass at all. I will enjoy every single second with it. And when it gets brushed off the table and smashes, when somebody's washing it and it breaks, I will not suffer because I have a non-attached appreciation to this glass. Hold on, hold on. So, so, if we- And then he hands the glass away. No, listen. And then, okay, so if we apply that to what you've presented where you said like, look, I'm gonna move this hedonistic, I wanna fuck, fight, fucking whatever. (laughs) Right? Hedonistic (laughs) life, right? But, But with a Buddhist awareness. That means, from what I understand, there yeah. is going. So you, you. So this is interesting. That's the glass, the hedonistic life, the whatever that is living, right? The visceral living. Yeah, yeah. We'll call it visceral living. Yeah. That's the glass. Yep. And you're the master. And so on some level, you recognize there's going to be a time where the glass is going to have to shatter. It's all going to shatter. Now, are you thinking like, yeah, when I die, or no, are you no, thinking no, no. before at some point so I'm going to have to just let it go? So uh, when I finally had a little bit of money, I bought the car that I always wanted. Which I, was I bought, what? I bought the 6.4 Super Sport Impala Lowrider. Okay. Hydra, you know, I, I bought it in San Francisco. Then I moved to New York. I brought my Lolo to, to New York City with me. Oh, yeah. At one point in New York, the mechanics were working on it, and they totaled it and tore the frame in half. What? And like, you know, dropped it on one of those metal plates in New York City. And, and, and then we're trying to hit me with, like, I hope you have insurance because <laughs> we, uh, we didn't cover insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was telling this story to some homies at the tattoo shop in New York, yeah. and there's one woman there, and she said, you know, Noah, I always thought that your Buddhist thing was just kind of like your angle to pick up on chicks. Yeah. She's like, but you just lost your car. Right. And you're not suffering about it. Right. She's like, I would be murderous. Right. I would, wa- I would be angry, I would want to kill, and you're telling me like it's no big deal. And I said, yeah, because that lowrider's already broken. Right. So I've been tested a lot, a lot of loss. My father died a couple years ago, killed himself in an ugly way. What? My marriage ended in betrayal. You know, my whole community fell apart. I've, I've you know, been able to walk through it because I understand impermanence. I understand that this shit happens, that it's already broken. I don't not suffer at all. Right. I feel the grief. I feel the sadness. I feel betrayal. All of that stuff I feel. But 30 years of meditation changed my relationship to thinking that it's supposed to stay the same. Right. Or that it's not supposed to get broken or that people are always supposed to act right. They don't. Right. <laughs> Including me. I don't always act right. Right. You know? and, that, and then there's the compassion and the forgiveness and the humility to be like, oh, yeah, I fucked up. Is anybody else here fucked up? <laughs> you know, right. Like, of course, we all have. Now, I don't, I don't mean any disrespect, but I'm kind of curious, like your dad who went through this whole learning stage and then you tell me how he passes, how does that happen? How does somebody who is enlightened eventually take his own life? Well, first of all, not enlightened. Well, okay, work towards Second it. Second of all, he believed in assisted suicide. I got it. You know, he believed I in got that. it. You yeah. know, he worked I believe death in and that. dying. He was like, look, it. you want out, you want out. Right. Here's the hypocrisy and, and the unskillfulness. The dude's main teaching was like, look, if you're going to kill yourself, go ahead. But don't do it in a messy way where other people are going to take it personal and blame themselves. Right. You know, make sure that everybody around them knows that they're loved. Make, Make sure that everybody knows it's not their fault. Right. He did not do that. You know, he actually, my, my pops called me about a month before he, before he died. And he said, look, and we had had some conflict at the end. Yeah. And uh, he was kind of losing his mind, I think had some uh, dementia. 
Right. And um, and he said, are we good? And I said, Dad, you know, like we got all this conflict that you won't talk to me about. And he's like, yeah, and I, I still won't talk to you about it. But are we good? <laughs> and I was like, I love you. I forgive you as much as I can. He said, cool, I'm dying. He said, why don't you come say goodbye to your old man before I die? I said, okay, I've got a retreat next week. I'll be there in two weeks. Did he have a disease? He had um, some psychological, you know, kind of uh, dementia. His brain was going. Yeah. He had some physical stuff. He, he, part of the problem was he wouldn't tell me what was really going on. Got it. So I bought a ticket to New Mexico to go see him. Four days before I got there, he killed himself. He knew I was coming. He, he, hadn't, he hadn't seen my sister, his daughter, in five years. He did it in a messy way. Right. It was fucked up. Right. My stepmom lied to us about it, tried to cover it up. Like, it was ugly. These are people who dedicated their life to teaching wisdom and compassion. And when it came to it, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it with integrity. Maybe some of it was because of his dementia and, and you know, kind of he was so far gone. No, that's interesting because— But they couldn't do it. So, you know, there's a lot of wounded healers. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have a lot of great things to say but don't actually live it. You know, do you think he was sending you a message personally by doing it this way? It gave me a teaching. I don't know if it was intentional at all, but of course it becomes my practice. Right. It becomes my practice. It becomes my forgiveness. It becomes my grieving, you know, and a further individuation. And, and I think also for me, it's, it's an important teaching with like that and some of what's happened with, uh, with my teacher, Jack Cornfield, where we're not really connected anymore. Um, of that kind of like, okay, here I am. I'm a teacher. I have, I know I have my imperfections. Yeah. I know my teachers have their imperfections. It's okay to be wounded and still try to help people, still dedicate your life. You don't got to be perfect. Right. You know, none of my teachers are perfect. You know, when my dad died, and I was right there, and I was holding his hand, and he died from alcoholism and obesity. Totally preventable, right? In all my life, I mean, he was a crazy man. Angry alcoholic, lawyer, obese, hippie, whatever. So, <clears throat> but at the end, right, when he died, and we went through a bunch of shit, but when he died, like I was holding his hand, <laughs> Steve's, uh, Steve's starting to hit the... Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Steve's... You just is, woke me up, though. Yeah, this, is the, this is Steve's nah, nap time. This is when yeah, we put yeah. him down for a little nap. Go on. But when, when I was holding his hand, right, I was like, uh, and he was dying, and... Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that we were perfectly good, but I understood he was human. And after he died, right? And my dad always gave me adult lessons earlier than I was ready my whole life. And this was the final one. When he died, the first thing, the first thing that entered my mind was, why the fuck did I just go through all that? The second thing that entered was, this man died from unhappiness. That's what killed him and he couldn't ask for help. I don't get that. And if not now, when? That's interesting. Yeah. So was your dad a happy person? You know, I feel like my dad's um, level of happiness declined a lot when he stopped teaching. And he stopped teaching, you know, I feel like he really thrived. He had a bit of a narcissistic, you know, need for praise. And like even our conflict of like when I disagreed with him, he couldn't tolerate it. And he was uh, in conflict with a lot of his colleagues and and I, I, I get it because I'm a little bit like that, too. I see, yeah, I see a lot of mirrors like of, of my dad and myself. 
and he stopped teaching. He said, you know, I, I think it's unhealthy for me to give so much. I'm going to go practice what I preach, and I'm going to, you know, live on this acreage in northern New Mexico kind of with his wife by themselves you mm. know, for like 20 years. And I think that their level of happiness and a sort of cabin fever where they didn't see anybody, they didn't have any friends, they didn't have any community. Boy, it was just those two. And, you know, smoking lots of weed, you know. Right. <laughs> like, just and I think that his Super isolated. He, he wanted to see himself as one of those hermits in the cave that you were talking about, right. you know? Like, you know, writing poetry and doing, you know, Chinese calligraphy. <laughs> like he, was, he was doing some pretty cool shit. Um, every time I went to visit him, he'd be like, yeah, we, we stopped smoking weed. We're just going to, like, be clean, you know, be mindful. He's like, and then I'd see him smoking weed. And I'd be <coughs> like, I thought you, they're like, well, we're just smoking weed because you're here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sober. Why the fuck are you smoking weed? Because I'm here. Right. What's that got to like, do? Because we got to ground ourselves to be around you. <laughs> By just, the way, just to deal way, with you. Noah, when's your next visit? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We got to we got to get high because we don't really live on this plane, you know. So we got to like come back down to this plane with some weed and some cheeseburger. Dude, how straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> How straightforward could you be with your dad? Like, could you just be like, Dad, cut the fucking bullshit. You're an addict. Well, no, I tried. You did. And that's what broke down our communication. Got it. I'm sure I didn't do it in a, a very skillful way, but he wouldn't take any pushback from me. Any way that I disagreed with him, he had to be right. He had to be the man. And first half of my life, I was like, "Cool, like you saved my life. You're, you're, you know, right. you're famous. You're, right. you know, you're helping thousands of people." Right. But then as soon as I was like, you know, some of your shit don't fucking add up. <laughs> yeah. How does this add up? Like, wait a minute, mindfulness. Like, we don't get high. Right. You never stop getting. My dad was a junkie. Right. My dad was shooting dope in Mexico as a beatnik. Okay. My dad did a year in prison before I was born, Rikers, you know, for a weed thing. Like, he had a history. Right. By the time I was born, he was a hippie smoking weed, shooting some ketamine, you know, mm. lots of LSD, you know, like psychedelic cowboy. We know that scene, right? But yep. he was early. Um, you know, never shot dope again, stayed off of, you know, the, the powders. But, you know, was smoked weed my whole fucking life. Yeah. And when I got sober, he's like, I'm going to stop drinking. He didn't really drink that much, but he's like, in solidarity with you, you're going to AA? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't have another drink. Never had another drink. Right, but that wasn't his thing. But that wasn't his thing anyways. You know what? I'll tell you something. Early on in, in, my, in my relationship with Steve, uh, I had a moment, I won't go into the whole thing, but I had a moment where I talked to Steve and I'm like, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and this is supposed to bring me some kind of relief. I ain't that fucking happy. And Steve was like, yeah, bro, but maybe that's easy for you. He's like, maybe you're just doing the shit that's easy. What don't you want to do? And I'm like, man, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to stick my hand out and say, good morning. How are you? My name is Chumahan. I hated that shit. He's like, okay, well, then that's what you get to do, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Save my life. Connection. Save my life. Yes. I think about that every probably three months. All the time I think about that, man. And yeah. that's, the, that's, that's why actually you know, like in Buddhism we call it Sangha. In recovery, we call it fellowship. Right. That's what we need. Like, we need each other, right? We need the connections. We have to do the practices. We got to do the prayer, the meditation, the service, all of that we got to do too. Right. But without each other, you know, that's like my father. Like, he had the practice in the cave. Right. It's know? like and the got finger. into some crazy delusion. It's like <laughs> anything else. Anything you cut off or you separate, it's going to die. Yeah. You know, the Buddha said there's three 
refuges. Right. Refuge in the Buddha, your own awakening, refuge in the Dharma, the truth that you experience directly, and re- and refuge in the community. Right. You know, brotherhood, sisterhood, community. Everything's always a fucking three. You ever notice Threes. that? Everything's a three. There's a trinity over here, a fucking Italians, it's a garlic, basil, and fucking tomato. <laughs> Like it's everything's a fucking cilantro, three. onion, tomato, yeah. 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 ginger, garlic, onion. What's uh, what's what's uh, what's next for you, Noah? What's going on? Well, a little thing called Refuge Recovery that I created that um, has uh, been going through some changes. Refuge Recovery is Buddhist approach to treating addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote the book a few years ago. We started these Buddhist recovery meetings in Los Angeles. About 10 years ago, the book came out five years ago, and um, it got to the point where there's 750 refuge recovery meetings around the country, wow. in Europe, and Mexico, like all over, like people using it as an addition or an alternative to 12-step because it's using mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, community as the model. Rather in place than of step. cigarettes and coffee. Yeah, well, no, that too. No, that too. Yeah, you know, for, there's this weird thing where, like, Buddhists like they think it's spiritual to drink tea, yeah, instead of coffee. <laughs> That's mm. true. Which I think is bullshit. I'm it a is coffee bullshit. Man. Yeah, it anyways, is bullshit. I mean, there's caffeine. Tea's in, all right. There's man. caffeine in tea. So that's some English shit. Man. Yeah, like, they're, yeah. They're I, I get that. Uh-huh. I totally agreed, get that. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so you know, I'm focused on on refuge. Uh, you know, with some some drama that happened last year, the board of directors of Refuge tried to get rid of me, tried to sue me and kick me out of uh, out of the the board, and tried to take my copyrights of this program away and trademarks. Fuck. Why? And they lost because I got accused of some bullshit, and then they said you look bad for business. You know, I got accused of a, like a Me Too thing that was totally not true. They knew it wasn't true. It was an ex girlfriend just being spiteful. And they just used it as this, like, let's get rid of them. Let's keep it for ourselves. They lost the suit because it was, you know, groundless. Right. But um, what's happening now is that since they lost, they left. They started a new program. They stole all of the ideas, all of the structure, all of that. And now they're trying to get people to leave Refuge Recovery and join their new program. Got it. And some percentage of them are going, you know. But I, So I got it back. I'm rebuilding it. I feel like, look, I, I just want to be of service. Anywhere that people get help is cool. It doesn't got to be with me as long as, you know, they get good good people, good help, good good support. You know what? I'm a lawyer, and it's interesting. So uh, <clears throat> so you, you had your program or whatever. They tried to take it. There was a lawsuit. Now, did you guys file the lawsuit to get it back or to stop them from doing whatever? Well, just uh, defended it. Right. Okay. And then you eventually won that, or they were like finally like, okay, we see your point. Settle. Yeah, they, they, they realized that they had no case. They had no case. That, they, they knew they had no case. That's just, the point of having a good attorney. If you have a good enough attorney, they can, can tell the other side's attorney, like, look, here's the law. Stop the bullshit. Like, you, you, you want to walk all the way down the road, we can. There's going to be attorney's fees sanctions afterwards because you don't have a point. Uh, and then they said, okay, so they just decided, fuck it, walk away. Yeah, they, they, they let it go and gave it all back, but, you know, have done this divisive, you know, very harmful move where they're, like, trying to get groups to leave, you know, what mm. they've been part of for years to go to this new thing. And a lot of people want to, you know, a lot of it comes down to, like, identity politics and, like, we don't want to have anything to do with the straight white male patriarch that created this thing. And we want this to be this, like, anarchist uh, movement and um, I get it, 
Right. I get it. I don't want to be part of any straight white patriarchy either. I just happen to be that dude. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I on. get it. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Good. So is there a website or whatever they can yeah, go refuge to? Yeah, org. Okay. Um, and it's on, you know, a bunch of groups on Facebook. And, and then our meditation center in Los Angeles is Against the Stream Meditation, um, you know, on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, the website is againstthestream.com. Where are you guys located? So we're in Venice. And so there's a couple classes a week in Venice. Got some retreats. Got some silent meditation retreats. I like to invite all of you to Listen, the, good to you the see this crazy fucker right there? He yeah, did he needs uh, Vipassana. Yeah, same, same. He did, he did a full week. Yeah. Uh, ten days. Ten days. Yeah. And who's that dude that was like, he, dude, so they, he's got some great stories. One lady during the meditation That's farted and it was so quiet. I mean, yeah. it was loud People and like nobody, laughing. no, did anyone no. laugh? No. Well, after, after she said, she uh, leaned over to grab a pillow and <laughs> farted. And they she said, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then people laughed. <laughs> and then he, he was in a room with some, what was that I guy's had a name? Bunk, I had a bunk. So like it, it, when you go to the, the retreat, you, you have to share a room. And then you put up like a, like a piece of cloth in between you or whatever. So this guy was a Jehovah Witness uh, minister, but he was trying out this. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. He was giving it a shot. What it was, was X? I forget. What it was, was I don't remember his, his name. His, his name was like Lyle. He's leaving pamphlets on your pillow. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't. <laughs> I think. I think he was. He was trying to get in a new. He was trying to find himself. You know. Yeah. Through. I mean. Anyway. Um. So. Uh. I think it was day two. Uh. And every night they play uh, SN Goenka's like video at the end of the. I've been to one. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's dope. And um, I, he started. The video was about, I can't even remember what it was about. It was about something odd. And uh, and the guy comes back and he's like, hey, uh, Sean, and you're not supposed to talk. So I'm like shocked when he's <laughs> talking to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so do I break it? Or am I supposed to like console this guy or and like say, oh, it's okay or whatever? He's, he says, I'm going to leave. This isn't for me. I'm out of here. So I just want you to know. And so I'm not... I, Am I supposed to respond to him? Is that okay? But I didn't say anything. <laughs> I was just like, "All right." That's where um, the, that's where the bow comes in, you know. That's well, like he couldn't the, see me because oh, of the sheet. Oh, he couldn't see you behind the sheet. Yeah. That's right. Behind a sheet, I was bowing. Lyle, yeah, no. Lyle, the Jehovah Witness, was oh. like, "Sean, Sean, I can't take much more of this suck silent shit. Sean, I gotta get the fuck out of here. This isn't for me." And you were yeah. like, in the other side, like. <laughs> what do I say? <laughs> Nothing, I guess. I want to thank you, Noah. I, I, I really enjoyed having you out here today. I, I feel like I learned a ton of stuff. You did? I did. I learned a lot today. Yeah, this I got to learn. we went in some interesting directions. Absolutely. And I got to find out about your story, you know, um, and how you kind of got here today. And I am definitely a participant um, uh, in... in in, in what you bring and what you offer to the community in the West Side in Venice. And I advise everybody listening and my partners. Wait a second. I want to do one quick Buddhist hot take. I want a hot sure. take from Noah Levine, who's, sure. who studied Buddhism. Quick, Tin Nicton, hot take. What, do, what are your feelings about Tin Nicton? You know, uh, he's been one of my teachers. I, mm-hmm. I was super inspired by his books. And, um, you know, he, he breaks the Dharma down, Buddhism down in a simple, practical way you know, to live mindfully, and, uh, you know, he's one of the, the living masters, although I think he's on his way out, had had a stroke, went back to Vietnam, he's about to die, it looks like really? he doesn't have a lot of time left, but, 
yeah, he was uh, definitely for our generation. He was one of the sort of living masters. And I've got some critiques, but mostly. Yeah, praise. what but are the most, critiques? Was my aunt, my aunt, my, my aunt, my aunt, my <laughs> aunt, who, who's like a Tibetan Buddhist, she follows Songyal Rinpoche. Anyway, yeah. she's like, Tintikton's just too soft. I, I need something a little, he's not strong enough for me, or blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, what does she have to say about Sogil these days? She Sogil got in big trouble. What did he get in trouble for? Oh, he was having sex with all his students and got kicked out. <laughs> really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. You know, I saw oh, yeah. Sogil. I didn't know. She yeah. didn't say anything. She might not even know. I don't know. Hundreds of women came forward and were like, yeah, I was blowing Sogil. He told me I would get enlightened. <laughs> Blogil. Blogil. Blogil Rinpoche. I saw him speak at the Harmony Gold, Sogil. Good and teacher. Good teacher. And good. That, that book, the Tibetan book of living and dying. That I've read that book. But he, what book. he said there was the first time I understood what he was saying. He said the Tibetans and probably other people have a model of mind. It's got like nine minds. He didn't know. really write that book. There was a ghost writer, but it's a good book. It's a good book. So that's interesting. Yeah, her teacher, Sogyo. I'm so going to let her know. I'm going to be like, dude, I so, guess he was. So uh, was a rascal. Yeah. And then there's that drunk teacher, the drunk Buddhist master. I can't remember what his name what? was. Yeah, there was a guy. He would drink. He was from He was from Asia, and he was serious. Oh, you're talking about uh, Chogyam Trungpa. Yes, oh, Chogyam yeah, yeah, Trungpa. Yeah, yeah. Shambhala. Shambhala, yeah. 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 Here, here's the only shit I'll talk about Thich Nhat Hanh. I like to say this when I'm teaching. You know, he does this beautiful, like, do everything slowly. Walk slowly. And I'm just like, you know what? I want to go fast and still be mindful. Right. I want to be normal. Like, cool for you, dude. You're a monk. You've got all thousands of students. You're going to do everything slowly. I got kids. I got a job. I got shit to do. It's America 2019, I want to be mindful <laughs> and slam dance. You know right, what I mean? And right. I don't want to do Thich Nhat Hanh zombie slow slam dancing. <laughs> dude. I want, to, I want to stage dive in real time. Nothing Nothing is harder for me to do. <laughs> nothing. Listen, you can stage dive just slowly. <laughs> slowly stage dive. One Step at a time. Dude, I did the meditation, the mindful walking or whatever. And I got to tell you, I mean, I, I definitely have monkey brain because I look at everyone else and I, I have, it's hard for me not to laugh my ass off because everyone's trying to be so serious. So, so spiritual. Oh, so spiritual. Yeah. All right. I, I want more of a like, you know, that's why I created Dharma punks. Yeah, like, right. I want to like a fuck you Buddhism. Right. You know, like a, a kind of real. You should like, just let's call skate, it that. I, I, fuck, fuck you. you fuck you, Buddhism. Buddhism. I would join that. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, Buddhism. That's a good time. I do like that. Good stuff, Noah. Thank you for coming down Thanks today, man. Awesome. I had a good Thank time, you, you guys. All right. All right. Yeah. We are out. Adios. 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 Adios.